The Movie Morgue podcast is supported by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you want to learn how to support our show, please go to patreon.com slash doubledocmd. This week's episode represents a bit of a break from our October theme of hauntings, but we all felt like it was necessary to talk about this movie since it's out in theaters now, and since all three of us had quite a bit to say about the plot and content of the film. Just wash it all, wash it all away, it will haunt you. Ladies and gentlemen, symbiotes and hosts, welcome to the Movie Morgue, the movie autopsy podcast. I'm your host, Silvio Emery. And I'm your co-host, Andy Neller. And returning friend of the show, John Donnie. We are John. Ow, okay, I'm not doing that oh, for, for the whole, sake, th- whole show, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> and as you may have guessed, perhaps by clicking on the play button somewhere, uh, we are covering the 2018... Sony Marvel co-production weird thing, uh, Marvel. The, Ma- Marvel. Venom. Fuck. <laughs> no, Marvel's the next Marvel movie. <laughs> Directed by Ruben Fleischer, starring uh, <laughs> starring Tom Hardy. So uh, yeah, let's talk context ever so briefly. Uh, this is a Sony Columbia Pictures production that is basically kind of ignoring the Marvel franchise in general, not co-produced or tied in like the Spider-Man films currently are. Uh, So it's a little bit of a weird one. Yeah. Yeah, just a bit. (laughs) Continuity limbo. Uh, Yes, regardless though, Venom is quite the famous character. The antithesis of Spider-Man ever since the Secret Wars event. Uh, when was that? That was like early 90s, yeah. wasn't it? Or was that late 80s? That sounds about right. Um... Are you talking about the 1980... I think it's 1982. The very long toy commercial. 1984. Okay. 1984. Yeah. Okay, so I was a little bit off the Just mark. Just a bit. I mean, to be fair, though, there when stuff happens like right before... Like, like in the five years up to your birth, or like in the five years after your birth, like that's just kind of a blurry line of I wasn't aware of things. <laughs> so stuff from when I was a kid, even though I wasn't paying attention to any of that crap, kind of all blurs into that period for me. Anyways, uh, antithesis to Spider-Man. So that's kind of, I think, why it's weird that this is a movie without Spider-Man. And I think a lot of people have noticed. So, um, do you guys have anything that you guys want to comment on or bring up about the movie and why it exists in the context in which it is? Or your kind of person... Actually, let's talk about expectations, but anything else you guys want to add before we go there? I am not looking forward to the Jared Leto Morbius the Living Vampire movie. <laughs> I'm glad someone I am said it. absolutely with that. I, absolutely I would much not. prefer, can we get rid of that movie and get the Black Cat movie back? Let's let's do that one. Into it, into it, into it. <sighs> what about you, Annie? Uh, you got, what were you expecting going into Venom? I don't really know. Um, from the trailer, I think I was kind of expecting, well, here's what I was hoping. Tom Hardy is a very good actor. He's been in some of my favorite films, particularly in Bronson. Um, 
And I was kind of hoping to see some of that energy put into this movie, uh, this sort of like attention to detail, disjuncture. <sighs> Sometimes our expectations are not what we receive. So, yeah. <laughs> I think that's what I kind of wanted. I think I was probably a little bit far-fetched with my interests, though. So. And John, what were you expecting going into Venom? Not much, which is what I got, so. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm kind of in a weird place because we're doing this a week after we generally would because this movie got pushed back in Thailand by a week. And uh, this gave me a week to kind of see the critical takes go in, see the Rotten Tomatoes score tank, and then see the opening box office crush it. So, I have been unsighted for this uh, since the first trailer. I think the first tra- the trailers have shown this to look great for a CW TV show and terrible for a blockbuster movie. And uh, everything I've heard kind of led me to low expectations, but I was expecting some dumb, you know, Tex-Mex filler meat after the broad, uh, appealing, I guess you'd call it, audience reception. Because I've had a couple people who I hang out with say like, no, it's it's good, man, don't listen to the critics. Like, it's it's not your typical superhero movie, which means it's probably really stupid. Um, <laughs> I've heard... <laughs> and... <laughs> Sorry. I no, go say, ahead. I've heard people who enjoyed it describe it as a rom-com? Wait, that what? Is, I mean, what? I can... Hold what? on. What? If the romance is between Tom Hardy and Venom... Um, okay. That makes more sense than the other way. It's still more no, odd couple than rom-com. Let's, ridiculous. Yeah, I don't disagree. I don't agree with that. You know, assessment. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying what I heard. Yeah. You're just asking the hard questions. So, let's actually review this one. Okay. And I'm going to start here because this one was... I came out of the theater last night. Okay. And I was honestly hovering B minus C plus, and ultimately I think I'm actually downgrading it to a C plus. Uh, there are fun things in this movie. I did enjoy my time going to the theater seeing it, but... Ultimately, those things that were good were not part of the thesis or thrust of the film. And it fails very much at, you know, being a big blockbuster tentpole. This would be great, like absolutely great as a long-running TV show. Uh As a movie, it fails structurally and it doesn't look up to the kind of investment that it was, really. It looks like it's making its money back, but... I'm not so sure that it deserved to, you know? No. (laughs) That's fair. What about you, Annie? Um, I mean, there are very few movies where I can say that I've walked out of a theater angry. And this is one of them. Like, I was not just mad. I was, like, sweating because I was mad. And then I was, like, furiously tweeting And I'm sure there were a whole bunch of people around me just going, like, who is this, like, sweaty little white girl who's you know, like, furiously texting people. But this was a real kind of, like, I don't know. I'm going to downgrade mine because I had it actually sitting at a C when I was in the theater, but I think this is a C or C-minus movie to me. There is 
a failure to execute its core concept, a failure to utilize really excellent actors. And when it does utilize those actors well, it doesn't carry out their um, the uh, calculus of their narrative. So it's it was a really frustrating movie for me to watch. John, how about you? I, I'm going to also say, I, I'm just going to say solidly, uh, just to see, uh, it was... Like, I mean, there were parts that were fun, uh, but the movie as a whole did do- doesn't work at all. Like, I mean, it's still a movie, technically. So your review is Venom is a movie? <laughs> Venom, technically a movie. I mean, that is kind of valid, though. Uh, when we When we look at how the studio process goes past a certain level of budget. There is a minimum level of editorial oversight and fixes and notes and reshoots that will bring a movie up into mediocrity, you know, past a certain level, the studios will not allow something bad to be created, but they can't make it good. The best they can hope um, for is mediocre. I think I messaged this to you, doc, uh, where I, I think this movie feels like it was written by an algorithm. Yeah, a little bit. I was going to so... say that this felt like a screenplay that they had taken off the blacklist, like one of the ones that was a bit lower down. Because um, it, mm. it just, the story itself does not feel, it feels like a draft, not like the final product. And I actually have some insight into that, which we can talk about I, later. I'm going to be real. I'd love to I'm going to be real. That. If you take a movie and you make Elon Musk the bad guy and I don't enjoy myself in the movie, you have fucked up, sir. <laughs> yeah. You know yeah. what? That is absolutely fair. Oh, there were seven writing credits on oh, this. Boy. This is Ooh, So boy. it was written by an okay, algorithm. There's five there's five. There's five there's writing credits five. and then Todd McFarlane and David yeah. Michelini. Yeah. Get uh, Venom creator credits, but still five. That's a two of which are the same person, so I don't Good. understand. So I guess three writing credits. Movies are confusing, guys. Let's let's talk about mechanic. Let's talk about what worked in this movie and what didn't. Okay. Um, I'm gonna start off with basically my only positive note is the odd couple thing between Tom Hardy and Venom was great. I loved that. Um, just like the inner voice, the hungry. I love that. That, that was some of my favorite shit in this movie. Uh, and like anytime that was happening to me, it felt kind of like when you're playing like an RPG and like you can choose your party members and there's inter party member dialogue. That's bullshit. That's like written to flesh out the characters, but to not ever actually touch the plot. Yeah. (laughs) Stuff like Dragon Age. And it was, that was great. but it had no bearing on the plot whatsoever. No, that that bullshitting is what convinced Venom in the end that humanity was worth not eating. <laughs> As nah. tears roll down our nah. cheeks. Nah. Tears of laughter? Nah. <laughs> nah. Nah. Yes. <laughs> um... So one of the things that I actually liked was just like a tiny tidbit, and that's when Tom Hardy jumps into the lobster tank and takes a bite out of a lobster. A live lobster. That was a that was a lobster. fun scene. 
that was a really fun scene and um that action was actually improv by Tom Hardy and he really went to bat with the director to insist that he be allowed to do that because he felt that that was a good character choice and I think that Hardy actually makes some good choices for his character in terms of how he portrays him in the movie and that moment in particular struck me because it's it's so outside the social acceptability uh, standards of that space and it's and it's so out there and it's jarring and I really I just really liked that so what it's what I'm hearing is that Tom Hardy was trying very hard to be a good actor and mostly the algorithm didn't let him yeah <laughs> I, li- I like that scene um, but I want to make a point of contrast though because that entire kind of segment of the movie is unconscious reckoning with venom like, and I want to make a point of contrast where I think that was a great comedic moment and it did give us important insights, uh, especially because like, you know, no, that's dead. Like that, that's an important thing. Right. The, well, it would be an important thing if the movie gave a shit. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, if it cared. <laughs> but yeah. um, for, uh, until we reach the end of the movie, we can't actually conclude that the movie doesn't care. But, like, honestly, I was expecting him to have to eat space, guy. Whatever. Who gives a shit? The movie certainly doesn't. But, uh, you learn something important there. But I want to contrast that to earlier when he's in an apartment and he's eating food out of the garbage and puking up in his toilet. Where you're taking the same premise and the same exploration of the concept, and that's just not fun. Like, that's just gross. And not in a, oh my god, look at what he's doing there. It's just in a, oh... This is, like, physically unpleasant to look at. Like, he doesn't even hold his head over the toilet. He sticks his head yeah. in it. It's, it's not pleasant. And it goes, I think, too far into just being gross for grossness sake rather than actually trying to say anything with that grossness. Yeah, and one of the things that was interesting to me is I tried not to read any press on this movie before I went into it, but somehow I still ended up reading one thing, and that was an interview with the director where he compared this movie to The Dark Knight by saying that, you know, like, we are (laughs) attempting to tell stories in the same way that Chris Nolan did, and we are also going to lean very, very hard into that PG-13 to you know like push the boundaries of it and instead what we get is just like a a lot of random stuff like that toilet scene you just described where it's grossing out for the sake of grossing out and not necessarily anywhere approaching what happened in the dark night oh but wasn't it funny when venom tried to when venom brock tried to eat frozen tater tots yeah, this this is a weird thing. Like, I would describe the aesthetic of this film as Midwestern Mall, <laughs> which is weird because I think is it L.A. or San Francisco? I don't remember. It's San it's Francisco. San Francisco. <laughs> Doc. I mean, tell me I'm wrong. You're not wrong. I'm just making a lot of connections in my head now that I didn't before. So I like that I'm pretty sure Eddie Brock's unemployed apartment is bigger than mine. Yeah, no kidding. So actually, I want to talk about Tom Hardy for a second. Because okay. I think he does good work in this. But I think some of the decisions, and I'm not sure how many of them were his and how many of them belong to the director. Mm. Okay. But... um. 
I'm not sure I like like awkward mumbly Eddie Brock. I think Tom Hardy pulls it off well and it creates like this kind of it, it, it infuses him with that loser energy that seem they seem to be going for with the story. And it's executed well. I just don't think that the purpose of it necessarily gels with what you want a Venom movie to be. Not really, and I don't think it like I think Tom Hardy does like a good enough job of it, but I don't think it's really playing to his strengths. I don't think so either. What I can tell you about what was going on on set during this movie was that Tom Hardy was trying to make choices as an actor and the director was telling him no a lot. And it was also enough that Hardy actually left the set one day. He got very, very upset with the director. Um, It was over lines. He told them that the lines did not work and that they needed to be rewritten because it just didn't make sense. That's literally what he said. This doesn't make sense. I can't say it. And then he left the set. So I get the feeling that the production for this movie was actually fairly tumultuous and that there was a lot of push and pull between the directorial team and Hardy himself and then also some of the producers who helped to um, along with the director to bring him back on set after he had left so I think that's probably why we're seeing some of that disjointed feeling maybe not the mumbling because I agree I don't think that fits within this film like within the aesthetics of what you want Venom to be I mean it leads to some funny gags I kind of like like, I, I kind of like some of the stuff they do with it. I just don't think... Like, here's the thing. This is something I think that kind of works for an original character almost, but it is not, you know, the Eddie Brock that I know. And I am not some kind of comic originalist. I am not going to say, actually, the only true Eddie Brock was written by day to day to day You know, Todd McFarlane's original vision... But, like, he has no connection to Peter Parker. He's, he like, look at the visual design. And this is actually a weird thing I'm seeing. Like, I learned today that I'm actually taller than Tom Hardy. But it feels like they really tried to make him smaller in framing and so on. Like, the lady behind the counter at the uh, little corner store, she's standing up on a block. She is way taller yeah. than him. Which is weird for a store like that. Normally, you know, it's floor level. Come on. You don't need to step up there. You don't want to be handing your cash up to someone. No, not really. Um, and, like, they abused San Francisco to do that. They made uh, they made uh, Michelle Williams taller than him um, by placing her higher on a San Francisco hill. Well, I think part of that is also supposed to go with this idea that Eddie Brock is a loser, right? So they've created a visual means through which to articulate that by making him shorter than other people because a lot of people are height prejudiced and they can potentially read that into the text without knowing it. So I think that might be part of it. I, I think it definitely is. But one of the issues this creates for me is because they try to make Tom Hardy so small, it absolutely makes it harder for me to believe that he is Venom because Venom is so massive on screen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's getting aside the point that, uh, you know, the CG is bad and dated and I don't for a second believe that any of the actors are on screen with Venom. Yeah. What, you mean you didn't believe that Whirlpool fight at the very end? Oh, fuck that Whirlpool fight. (laughs) that's, that's That's not cinema. 
Okay? That Whirlpool fight is a graphics card bench test. <laughs> Yo, look. Oh. Yo, look. Uh, the way people complain about the, tra- the Transformers fights being confusing, that's the way I actually felt about that fight, because I could not, until the very end, tell what parts were Riot and what parts were Venom. Oh my gosh, I thought it was just me. Okay, that's good to know that no one else could tell what was going on. Um, yeah, that... I don't know what was going on there, whether it was shaky cam as an effect that had been applied afterward along with the CG, whether that was the way it was shot. It was very difficult to tell, and it made the action indecipherable in that scene, which is a pet peeve. So Interestingly, though, I guess... Was Tom Hardy the voice of Venom? Yes. Okay, then he did a great job there. Because I was going to contrast, you know, it's like, hey, I'm Andy, I'm Andy Brock, and you, you turn your music down, like which I didn't really dig, to, like, hungry, which I loved. Yeah. You know. By the way, one of the best gags, I don't like the words used here, but pussy was such a, such a good laugh. Yeah. I can see that. It's just, like, there's some really snappy comedic timing in this. And it's a shame because it's not the focus of the film. There were a lot of action sequences that you could have just cut. Like, I'm not a big fan of cops, but I didn't need five minutes of cops shooting at Venom where it doesn't do anything. There were no stakes in that fight. It definitely felt that way. Wait, you guys, was there an after credits? Yes. Yes, there were two. Oh, I only oh, saw one. I, I did not see any because I stormed okay, out. Okay, because I here's quit. all right. I want to talk about the after credits ever so briefly. So the second, the first mid credit roll was uh, Eddie Brock is called up to San Quentin, and there's uh, fucking uh, what's his face? Woody Harrelson is Cletus Cassidy. Okay. Okay. And you know he looks at the and. It's really stupid because he does the whole thing. Like, he's scratching Hello Eddie in blood at the side of his cell. And then when Eddie Brock shows up, hey, can we skip the whole, like, psycho serial killer thing? It's like, yeah, sure, whatever. It's like, no, you, you literally just indulge in that movie. You can't have you can't, that both yeah, ways. Yeah, well, too bad. Also, he's wearing a wig, curly-haired wig, and it just looks ridiculous. <laughs> I, I loved how dumb it looked. Now, here, uh, here is the other thing, though. The second post-credit, which I was I was upset at that point. Like, I was just like, okay, fine, you did Venom, and you've already undercut Ven- you've already undercut Carnage because Riot has literally his entire shtick done. Yeah. Like, the whole, like, making weapons and being wild. Like, there, there's no reason to do a Carnage movie. But the second post-credit was, like, an extended, like, two-minute-long trailer for Into the Spider-Verse. And it was great. (laughs) I left this movie with a smile because it was fantastic. Yeah. I'm sad I missed that because we did get a new trailer. Was it? It seemed like it was a new trailer this time for Into the Spider-Verse when I was at the theater, and it was just delightful. Uh, My my favorite thing about it is that um, every... Uh, every spider per, sp- spider entity <laughs> has a different art style. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, no, I'm 
I'm so excited. It was like this long, drawn-out chase sequence with uh, Miles carrying Peter Parker from Peter Parker's grave while being chased by the cops. It's It was <laughs> fantastic. And I think that's kind of condemning because I, I'm going to get into, I think, one of my major theses is about this film. Okay. Because, like... Mechanically, there's sequences that made me laugh. I think we're just going straight into deep cuts here. Yeah. But... That seems to be a recurring theme with episodes I'm on. <laughs> it is. What can we say? You did y this, job. You've got a brand, John. It's true. Um, this is a movie that is fundamentally in denial. <laughs> uh, because one of the first things that you see is, you know, Sony Pictures, Columbia TriStar, Tencent, and then the Marvel logo. And I've heard a lot of discourse on this film be like, oh, you know, this is like a superhero movie from like 2007, you know, before the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it's like, it's a movie out of time. And I fundamentally disagree because this is not a movie that is ignorant of the last 10 years. This is a movie in absolute fierce denial of the reality of the last 10 years. What makes you say that? Because I was sort of in the camp of like, well, this feels like a 2007 holdover. Well, there's a couple things. Um, one, like like I said, I'm kind of primed from the production credit logos because it still comes up with Marvel. And it's yeah. it's like a, it's like a reluctant, well, I guess co-produced with Marvel, even though this is our thing and Marvel doesn't get to touch this. Get away from me, Stan Lee. Stay away from me. Except Stan Lee's in it. And he's, yeah, exactly. Stan Lee was a move. And it seems to reject the kind of archetypical, you know, hero's journey of, you know, your Marvel introductory movie to a character, right? This is a, this is trying to go against the grain, but it also indulges in every, you know, stock and trade of the thing. It does the post credits. It does everything. Yeah. It has too many and villains. Like, one of the things that really... <laughs> Yeah. I didn't and yet need a not personality at the same time. Yeah. And I think I was primed very early for this thought because one of the things that we had was Eddie Brock's independent journalism, which I don't hate as a concept, but the <laughs> aesthetics with which it was presented was not like actual reporting. It was like the Alex Jones show. <laughs> yeah. Like he was using the aesthetics of your, you know, he's, like, if I were to compare Eddie Brock in this film to any living media figure, and I say living media figure and not journalist for a very specific reason, is he's not, you know, Anderson Cooper. He's not, you know, Hunter S. Thompson. He's Laura fucking Loomer. <laughs> <laughs> Just because he's on the good side of history doesn't make him a good... And what really got me was... The image, and it's only there for like a second, of a rainbow flag with resist written on it. Oh, and Eddie yeah. Brock is covering God. some kind of protest. And <laughs> yeah, what I'm seeing with this really is that this film is co-opting the aesthetics and trying to ride lightly on this moment in our national history of unrest and disease and partisanship and mass protest without yeah. daring to ground itself in a moment. It's yep. saying like, hey, we're hip. It's the Kendall Jenner Pepsi commercial of filmic grounding. 
And so with with that, like everything they do is they're trying to go against the grain. It's it's the it's the libertarian fallacy. It's no, we got here on our own. But also we're going to ignore that, you know, all our people were raised in public schools and we use their roads and we abuse their tariffs and shit. Like, it's going to be like, I made this all on my own. And then you peel you peel that away and there's all these building blocks that other people did that they're trying to sweep under the rug. I made this myself. Please ignore my father's money. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up the flag moment because that was also a moment that I was noticing in that sequence um, and I was wondering what the sequence was doing and I, I want to draw us back to the other comment that you made about the aesthetics of this film because I think that's really important you say midwestern mall I'm going to shave off the midwestern part and just say mall mall is a space of commodification and consumption it's also a space that's largely free from politics right no one's allowed to canvas there and any sort of political advertisements that you would see or even images of protest are part of advertisements so it's a space where you don't really have to think about those things this movie is kind of similar um, it is politics devoid of any actual engagement with the issues. It lacks an ethical core. Uh, what it's devoted to instead is signifying, right? So that's why Eddie Brock drops all those buzzwords in that sequence. Um, showing the resist flag. He's talking about gentrification. He's talking about income inequality. All words which we know are part of millennials' um, political profile, if you will. So it's think of it more as targeted marketing towards millennials rather than having anything of value to say about the issues that this film addresses. I mean, it does. I don't think it even lasts that long because, like, that that part tries really hard to convince you that, like. Eddie Brock is a hard-hitting journalist who asks the tough questions, even if he really, really, really shouldn't. And also, they really shouldn't have said do that interview. What the fuck was that dude thinking? Like, that's like sending Ronan Farrow to interview Donald Trump and telling him not to ask about sexual assault. Yo, like, that's not... Yeah. No, you don't. But no, it's like, oh, you're, well, you're fired. This was definitely a gotcha moment. Yeah. Also, weird casting choice here. Um, I don't know who played his boss. I'm looking at the IMDb, and it's weirdly ordered, like, um, fucking, you know, um, homeless woman Maria is up there. Woody Harrelson is higher on the credits than whoever played his boss, and I don't want to bog us down checking for him. But I could have sworn for, like, half a second that he was Von D. Curtis Hall. And I felt like it was like almost a moment of denial of like pretending that daredevil in the netflix cin marvel cinematic universe doesn't exist or even say the punisher which is a fascinating series that has a very well-developed anti-hero like yeah it, uh, again it's, denial it's like the the other th the other thing also is it, it's very cagey about the fact that it is part of a larger property in this really weird way. Um, so two things. One, dropping the word kryptonite in a Marvel film, even if you're not Marvel Studios, very sloppy. Yeah. Very, very sloppy writing. <laughs> oh, boy. Second of all, second of all, 
Um, they refer that Eddie has escaped from New York, which again, I feels, I say feels like a denial. It's like, no, no, we don't need New York. Okay. Avengers can fucking have New York, man. Oh, so, but fun fact, there's an incident. Yes. Uh, because I actually did research for this. Oh, <laughs> um, tell, so tell. I read the comic arc that this movie was very loosely based on, uh, Venom Lethal Protector. Which is in fact set on the West Coast. Huh. I don't think they also do explain what the Daily Globe incident is, but I don't think it makes sense in the context of this film because in the comic, it's Eddie Brock thought he was catching a serial killer, but it turns out some dude was pranking him because he's a dumb as shit. <laughs> Okay, because that was what I was going to call attention to do next, is they mentioned the Daily Globe, and that feels like they're trying to find something to fill the space to not say Daily Planet. Not Bugle. Daily Planet. Uh, the Bugle. Yeah, sorry. but no, the Daily the Daily uh, Globe was actually a real comic mentioned, or a real newspaper mentioned in that comic. Um, a real newspaper in a, a real, real comic. A real fictional you. newspaper in a real fictional comic. No, it's a real comic, John. Um, look, fiction and reality get lines get blurred all the time. John, where are you now? Um, I'm on the TV set. There you go. Welcome to reality. Um, and like, it's just, it's just weird. I actually have a question for you guys because I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, is the Eddie Brock Venom character that we get in this movie, is he an anti-hero or is, I don't know. I feel like he, he is an anti-hero, but it's so watered down and underdeveloped that, uh... Okay. Uh, John, do you have any um, thoughts on this? Well, okay. I think by comics laws, if you eat a cop's head and still fight bad guys, you're an anti-hero. I know. I just this is um, fair. <sighs> but I, I think I think it's I don't know. He doesn't he doesn't work for me. Okay, so I have two thoughts on this. One, um if you want to borrow a little bit of moralizing and philosophy from the good place, their motivation for heroicism is preserving their playground. So no. Oh, they are not man. it's not necessarily a moral action. However, the other thing I will say is that yeah, he's an anti-hero, but the problem is he's not an anti-hero that's well written. This is I really do think this is today's equivalent of the 90s Spawn movie. Oh no, Spawn was so much better than this. It was. Don't, it was don't be and rude I to enjoy Spawn. Spawn, but it's a similar watering down of the comic book character. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's now. just that okay. um watering down venom venom is less strong than spawn in in this metaphor because spawn is way extra so tone so turning down the volume on spawn you still get something turning well it's interesting because they're both big todd mcfarlane creations and spawn you know argue very very arguably took more of his creative power than venom ever did because Venom, I think, suffers a little bit from being 
a post hoc uh, character. Because Marvel, when you look at a lot of their classic stuff, um, their editorial is kind of all over the place. <laughs> like, there's a lot of yeah. retconning. I'm still yeah. mad at Joe Quesada. Yeah. I'm still mad at Joe Quesada. And so, because Venom, I'm not sure when he came into being, but I definitely think it was not before the, uh, it was not at the first moment that Spidey got the black suit. So. Uh, actually. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, do you, do you to have be the person who says actually, but I think that's when Venom did come about. It's just that the character of Venom itself became um, reshaped after that moment. So that is sort of like the generative moment for Venom. It's just that it doesn't become the Venom character that we know until a little bit later after that. Yes. Well, I think the symbiote exists at that point. The issue is, I think Venom, as we define him today, is kind of defined by the by the meeting of the symbiote and Eddie Brock. And that was McFarlane's writing credit for that. That's why he gets the character creation credit. So when the black suit came about, I don't think Venom existed in such a way that you could point at someone's notes and say, look, here's the character that's coming up that's really cool. Yeah, uh, it was a bit of a, a mess. Uh, it doesn't have the uh, the benefit of being written by Chris Claremont, who I will actually say is a good writer of comics now that I've been reading some of his old old stuff. Hot hot take. Yeah. <laughs> the hottest of takes. Arctic take. The guy who made X-Men work is good at writing. Yeah, so when you compare that with Spawn, who has his own fictional universe, essentially, um, there's a lot more underlying lattice work to support Spawn than there is to Venom. And in this, they've taken all of that away. They've taken away New York. They've taken away Spider-Man. They've taken away a lot of Eddie Brock. There's a lot of different versions of Eddie Brock, as there are with any character in the Marvel Universe. But one of my favorite versions, uh, and I know it's one of Matt's favorite versions too, is the one from Spectacular Spider-Man, which is like you're in high school and he's like, he's basically a merger of Eddie Brock and Flash Thompson. And so, like, in many of their uh, incarnations, Eddie Brock is defined by his antagonistic relationship to Peter Parker. Well, yeah, Eddie Brock was always a gothic double, yeah. right? Like, they're, they're a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. That's who they are um, in terms of his relationship to Peter Parker. So without Spider-Man in this movie... Uh, but then again, I, I think they could have... They would have run into the trouble, which they did in the earlier Spider-Man movies, in which Topher Grace played Venom. So there's that. And then there's also the fact that you also have a very compelling movie that's already out. It's about a journalist who is kind of at the end of his rope, who um, becomes this really compelling anti-hero, and that's called Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal. So I, I think conceptually here, to do this movie... <laughs> might have been a bit difficult in the screenwriting. Well, I think I kind of figured out what they were trying to do here, and I don't think it worked at all. Um, so, what do you think so they were trying Venom to do? Venom is generally the through-a-mirror-darkly of Spider-Man. 
I think they were trying to invert that by having Riot be the through a mirror directly of Venom, which didn't work because I don't give a fucking shit about Riot. Well, and he shows up so far into the movie. Oh, too. wait, you do. You... Is Riot one of the actual symbiotes, or is he an original? Riot I don't know. is from the storyline that they adapted into this. He's like a random security guard who can make specifically blunt weapons, which is makes it weird that they gave him blades in this one. Oh, that's oh, that's because that's Carnage's thing. Yeah. The the symbiotes are kind of like their own sub universe, like you know the isle. There's what was it? There's like this oh, island of that. spiders event or something, whatever. Yeah, you know, in the comics, and it's really fucking dumb. I'm gonna say that right now. Comic people at me. I don't give a shit. The fucking <laughs> like Legion of Clones and alternate universe Spider Man, like alternate universe immigrant Spider Man, and all the symbiotes and sub-symbiotes and symbiote babies that were eat their parents or whatever the fuck they do. They fucking added a symbiote primordial god recently, like this year. His name is Null, and the symbiote home planet is a mass orgy of symbiotes holding in prison because it's the Clinthar is their word for cage. It's fucking stupid. Uh, you forgot, you forgot one is. of my favorite uh, plot points of that, and that's that Grendel was actually his symbiote host, and he the reason he got uh, was able to be caged in the first place is because Thor bonked Grendel in the head with a hammer and a lightning bolt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, oh. I didn't actually know that part, but within that, it? of all the symbiotes you can choose, there is a colorful cast. You have Carnage, who is basically what they were actually going for here. They just wanted to save the name for the sequel. Uh, You've got, you know, Anti-Venom, who's, you know, an inverted color scheme, and a much better anti, you know, a literal inverted mirror, if you wanted to go that way. They just, they had a yellow symbiote, uh, they had a blue symbiote, but instead they chose... One that's just gray, like of I think that the vet, the you know the symbiote subplot of the Marvel universe of Earth six one six is really fucking dumb. But amongst that, they made the worst possible choice amongst the choices they had. Um, yeah, I have an important fucking question right now. Okay. What the fuck was Riot's plan? <laughs> what the fuck was he doing? I believe that he was going to get on the rocket, go to the meteor, and bring back the invasion force. I guess... Yeah. I'm sorry, the comet. So I guess land on the comet and steer it into Earth. But why? Because they want to eat people. But they can't survive without people. And... This is the problem that you run into in the kind of taxonomic definition of the Metroid. Because they're always defined as parasites... But also, they kill their host. Like, immediately. That's why they're scary. Um, the other question I have is, like, but why, though? They clearly don't need food if they're living on a comet. 
Do they just want a planet? What's happening there? You could have just had Riz Ahmed be the bad guy, fucking with his Elon Musk ass shit. Well, and also, like, Ahmed's character, Ahmed does a good job in this role with what he's given. Like, his character is so calm that it's genuinely off-putting. And also, you know, you guys have described him as Elon Musk. There's a couple of other people that I could think of, too, who are, like, in Silicon Valley. People who have such immense amounts of wealth and power and pull in Congress that to take them down would be virtually impossible. And this movie doesn't really care about that. It doesn't have anything new to say about that, despite introducing, you know, essentially a different version of Tony Stark, who is arguably doing some of the same things that Tony Stark and his family members yeah. did. So, I... Yeah. I I kind of wish that the story had focused on that, on how do you take down somebody who is so big and so powerful and so ingrained in the system that you're living well, in? like... How do you do that? That's the thing, is from my understanding of having read several comics that feature symbiotes recently, is that symbiotes, at least in the comics, don't naturally have personalities, and they sort of just grow them in response to whoever they're bonded to. And that's not the case at all here. And I don't think that works at all. Yeah, one of the things that I found that was really weird about this is it's not really clear how intelligent Venom is on his own. Because as he's first, like, adapting to Eddie, it seems like he is this kind of primal id force, is hunger, food, it's dead, it's dead, I want living flesh, right? And then at the end, he's like, Eddie, you're a fucking idiot, apologize to her. Also, can... Which, I yeah, love that's that a great scene, scene, by the way. Yeah, that uh, was a good can, scene. But can we just take a moment to appreciate that Eddie Brock is so bad at interpersonal relationships, he needs a space alien to tell him to apologize <laughs> for getting his ex fired. Yeah. I mean, I think you could argue that there's a like a startup time to Venom being already intelligent. But they don't really take time to explore or clarify that. So I think that's like a post hoc justification. That's that's us being lenient and doing some of the work for them. I to mean, save I don't think that's true because they like Venom's just straight up like, oh, yeah, Riot's in charge of this mission. It's like mission. What's happening right now? Yes, apparently your mission was to sit on a rock in space and wait for something to happen to, that you could make a mission out of. Yeah, Riot was in charge of the Earth invasion plan where they all died in, uh, like, a year because they ran out of humans. Um, also, I don't understand... I don't understand the organ transplant thing. Why was that happening? The organ transplant Where thing? they're like, oh, you need to be a perfect match for the symbiote for it to accept you. Oh, I can tell you what's going on with that is it's it's basically inscribing Eddie Brock as a chosen one. Oh, okay. So they need to make Eddie Brock the special boy and then Elon Musk the dark special yes. boy. 
Also, Elon Musk, the yeah. Dark Special Boy, um, is I my also... new album. <laughs> uh, so, two things I want to mention real fast. Um, one, because I don't want to skip over uh, Jenny Slate as Dr. Doris Skirth. Uh, oh, no. She's I liked adorable. her. Yeah. She's so cute. She's I so adorable. I when she died. Yeah, and actually, this is one of those things where I feel like this film is terrible about, you know, like from, through a feminist lens <laughs> is you have the woman, you have the woman scientist who acts her conscious and dies. Yeah. You have the morality pet homeless woman and yep. you have the girlfriend. Yeah. Oh, the morality pet. Who, by the way, even like as so far as the girlfriend goes in this kind of movie is basically having her will disregarded as like, uh, you know, Eddie Brock slash Venom is not respecting her choices to move on in life at all. No, and fucking Dan's just a good dude. Dan is a much better person than Eddie Brock. No, Dan's a great dude. I'd go drinking with Dan. Oh, and there's also Mrs. Chen, who Venom basically terrorizes. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, nah. Oh, wait, actually, no. There's also a trend where the one symbiote Sorry, where Riot makes his way from Malaysia to the States, and he basically... Yeah, he does only infect women. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I want to push it a little further, though, too, because I think that the portrayal of these women is partly due to the intersection of a couple different identities. So it's not just that they're women, right? It's they're Asian women, and they're from Malaysia, and they're darker-skinned women. Which... I think that's a very important point to make because we know that darker skinned Asian folks globally get treated like crap. And in mainstream Hollywood films, they are often presented as stereotypes. They are the peasant. They are the abused wife. They are the gangster. I can think of very few movies where you have a darker skinned Asian protagonist. Um, But more to the point here, what I think is the most disturbing for me about it is the way that it very directly mirrors racist anti-immigration policies that we had here in the U.S. that were spread through news media, through movies, um, and through our laws. And these ideas were that Asian people were a source of contamination, that they were an invasion force and that they would potentially corrupt young white people. Uh, That gets played out very directly in this sequence because we have Riot transferring into the body of a Malaysian EMT, uh, then Riot transfers into the body of an elderly Malaysian woman, and without her consent, obviously, takes her to an airport where uh, he gets on a plane and travels to the U.S., and then transfers into the body of a young white child. So... I'm sure the production team thought they were making some kind of subversive commentary on American immigration and the ease of movement that white people have in the U.S., which we do. We have it very easy. But what the sequence actually ends up doing is um, reconstituting this racist notion that Asian people are containers of contamination of, in this case, literal host for a parasite Uh, which gets brought to the U.S. through their bodies, and they have no will or agency of their own. And then on top of that, a young white girl, uh, this thing gets transferred into her body. 
I don't really know or care if the production team knew that this was a thing at this point. I honestly was so upset by this sequence. I think that what it helped me to understand even more was the necessity for having writers of color in the writer's room if you are doing a story that talks about people of color. It's mandatory at this point because it's very clear that the people who are writing this story were not aware of this history and these stereotypes and didn't know how to tell the story. And and then having and then ha- having Riot go right into Riz Ahmed after that is not a great look. I know I keep changing yeah. between calling him Riz and fucking Elon Musk, but y'all know who I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um the other thing I'm going to say though is the methodology with which Riot ma- matches with the host is also kind of troubling in that he dominates. Uh, Riz Ahmed and him seem to be in agreement, but every other host that he has is he yep. completely overrides their will. So those two Asian women and that one little girl, yeah. they they are not yeah. partners in symbiosis like yeah. anyone else's. They are they are vehicles. They are literally not yeah, characters. It's, I mean, it's really pretty damning, actually. And I think one of the things that was interesting to me, too, is I just saw an interview, which I posted on the Facebook page, in which Riz Ahmed says, you know, like, there is some kind of subversive content to the story because you basically have literal aliens um, who he said uh, were people of color coming into a white host's body, and the white host tries to reject that, and they realize they can't live without it. Which, given a lot of the stuff that we've talked about already with regards to the symbiotes and the way that their storyline is constructed and also what we see in this movie, I don't know if I necessarily see that reading holding as much water, perhaps, as the actor thought. Yeah. I don't see it holding any water, really. Like, straight up, the... Venom, if you want, because here's what happens if you try to apply a immigration narrative yeah. to that, is Venom is one of the good ones. Uh. The rest are an invading force. They are literally incompatible with our quote-unquote way of life, yeah. our atmosphere, our uh. environment. They need to subvert us to survive. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, so it is actually worse than I thought. Oh, man. I... I actually have a question, and this yeah. is, like, less dramatic. Sure. What the fuck happened to the yellow symbiote? Because I, like, did it fall into a... It just it died. Just when? Yeah. When? It, did or, it fall into a plot hole? Um, what, happened, what happened is, and they were not very clear about the visual language of it, is what happened is it w- rejected its host and then was not scooped back up into a non-oxygenated environment fast enough. It died. You can see the visual language in the blue one that died coming out of uh sir, See, sir. I saw the blue one. I didn't see the yellow one. The yellow one was dead on the floor when Eddie Brock was in there looking oh, around. Oh, okay. okay. I might have missed that. The other thing that I wanted to ask you guys about was... Um, so, like, obviously homelessness and the disposability of homeless people comes up in this movie... I didn't particularly feel like they handled that well at all. Um, And I'm not sure 
where was that supposed to be going? Like, what is this film supposed to be saying to us about this? Other than killing homeless people is okay. bad, which... I have a, I have a fairly developed Please give us the this. hottest of takes. So, one of the... So, th- the important thing that you see here is that Carlton Drake is the super capitalist. He's your Elon Musk figure. You know... And the problem with this is what in this in the movie universe of Venom, violence is not systemic. That doesn't exist. Violence is singular and perpetrated by individuals. We don't see homeless people as a whole collective. We see Maria. We see violence inflicted upon her personally by Carlton Drake. And what we see in Venom in the character of Eddie Brock is he is ascended to become a peer with the capitalist by virtue of superpower. And so what happens then is it's not that Eddie, Eddie is not culpable for Maria's death. Society is not culpable for Maria's suffering. Carlton is culpable for her murder, and that is the only thing that happens. The rest of it is not analyzed and is not given weight. Because, like I said, she's a morality pet. She's not a person. She's someone that Eddie Brock pities and gives 20 bucks to because she makes him laugh. That... I'm glad that you've put it in this succinct way because a lot of that stuff was stuff that I was feeling but couldn't necessarily put words to. And it's... I think it's especially disturbing considering that, you know, San Francisco right now has some of the worst economic inequality in the country. And uh, so this issue of, you know, homeless people being treated horribly is a very serious issue in San Francisco right now. And there are a lot of plans to, and I use this phrase because this is what they're using, sweep the streets of these people. Um. Yeah, I've heard them referred to as human garbage as well by somebody who um, traveled to San Francisco. So, like, people should know that those narratives are out there and that people do actually believe them. And I think that's also part of the reason why I was kind of disappointed in this film. It doesn't carry this out. Like, you know, Anne's apartment that she lives in is something that you could only afford to have if you made millions of dollars every year. Eddie's apartment is something you could only afford to have if you made, like, at least half a million dollars a year. So even that, there's, like, this pretension that everybody, you know, is somewhat close in uh, economic class except for the homeless folks, and that's just not the way things are at all. Yeah. So I actually, I'm having one of my doc movie proposals in my mind right now. Because there is a version of this film that grapples with this, and that version is not going to sell as well. But that version will be would be like a fascinating and like meaningful film that attempts to say something. Because what should happen, I think, this movie is first of all, this is entirely this Eddie Brock is basically entirely divorced from comic Eddie Brock. So This is one of those cases where I would arguably say, like, for the sake of this story, and if you're going to keep the name, recast as an actor of color, first of all. Yeah. But secondly, 
have him getting blacklisted drive him into homelessness. Ooh. Have him be a test oh, subject. God. Yeah. You see? But, you know, that's not the movie we're getting. And I don't necessarily, like, it. it's such a downer note that we're doing this on that I'm not going to, like, get super excited for, like, yeah, and then he can ascend a thing and we have this scene and it's really cool. Like, I'm, I'm not in that energy where I want to just, like, start spitballing a movie. I'm just saying those are some fundamental decisions that would add some, you know, actual weight to this. Instead of this fucking, you know, white guy journalist failing upwards. Yep. Because, like, that's one of the things that really bugged me is, like, he he get, he, I mean, not, not just the failing upwards thing, but Eddie Brock is a shitty fucking reporter. Not only was his, like, you know, the Brock report or whatever just kind of empty bullshit. It just, like, like his entire thing was, like, this kind of Trumpian, oh yeah, he says what people are thinking. Like, yeah, because he doesn't cite sources or do anything. Like, he just, he like, his boss was right to fire him. He's a fucking liability. Like, basically everything he does is actionable. His girlfriend um, was, but beyond should that, have when he's given access, when he's given access to Drake's facility, to the Life Foundation, all he does is snap a couple of pictures. Like, there's no, like, that's not a story. He doesn't go to take any files like, or anything. Yeah. Like, he's just such a shitty fucking journo. Yo, you know what? You could have also made a good movie where, like, you folk, you, like, flip the lens around and have him, like, instead of going, like, full fucking brute-ass Venom, just be like, yeah, you ha- lean into that fucking investigative reporter shit. Yeah, see, like, that would be a good dynamic also for, like, the Venom-Eddie thing, where Eddie's instincts is like, no, we have to expose them, and Venom's like, eat them, eat them, eat their faces. That would be also really interesting, because, like, you have Carlton Drake as this, like, untouchable capitalist figure, and then he fuses with Riot that makes him untouchable, like, physically in a fight. That would have been another interesting take on the movie, instead of... Uh, the algorithm. That was kind of what I was trying to get at before when I said, you know, like, you have this concept of a guy who is quite literally unstoppable, like you just pointed out. Um, we need villains in movies. Like, we need strong villains. We need strong anti-heroes because they can do that kind of work because that's how we find out what societal boundaries are what the rules of the movie are and it it just it's kind of striking to me that the main places that we're seeing a lot of character development are on the tv series on netflix like luke cage very well fleshed out um punisher is well fleshed out daredevil is as well and then when we get to the movies season two was good season one wasn't don't watch it I, I also heard that. Um, but I just think it's interesting, you know, when people say that Marvel has a problem with villains, I don't see that in the TV series. Like, Vincent D'Onfrio in Daredevil is an incredible, incredible villain. Yeah, he's... It's, the problem's oh, he's in the crazy. movies. Yeah. Um, 
Oh, who else is a good villain? Tenon is real good, obviously. Well, I mean, the pro the, uh, this is a problem that's kind of endemic to the Marvel Universe, not just the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. Is because a lot of these characters are legacy characters from, like, in the 50s and 60s. A lot of them are rich, white, prestige characters. You know, scientists, socialites, surgeons. Like, look at Doctor Strange. He's a white doctor who goes to the Mystic Orient to fix his yeah. hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yep. You know, we have a lot of problems. So, uh, and with uh, specifically the Marvel Cinematic Formula, a lot of character, a lot of villains are dark and twisted mirrors of the characters. And when the characters are all captains of industry, their dark and twisted mirrors are all, oh look, another evil capitalist. To the point where it kind of dilutes the thing because one of the things that really bugs me about. Uh, Riz Ahmed's character in this is that he consciously chooses evil every time mm-hmm. and that is flying in the face of yep. reality of what there's there's no contract negotiation there's no neglect there is no choice like wh- whenever he does a wicked act someone must come up to him and present it as an explicit choice in a way that I feel like is designed to absolve capitalists of their any kind of more responsibility because it's like, no, no, it's not, it's not like, you know, you wanted more money for yourself. So, you know, you fucked with labor negotiations or that it's just, it's not, it's not like it was something self-interested. It's just, you were presented with, we can do this properly or we can do this the evil way. And evil is never equated with profit. Yeah. Yeah. This. Well, Okay, here's the thing. This is kind of why I was comparing him to Elon Musk, because this is actually kind of how that dude, like, portrays himself, because he'll, like, ban the warning lines in his factory from being yellow because he doesn't like yellow. Like, that's not, that that doesn't, that's not for money. That's just because he's, I don't want to say a crazy person, but he's not. Well, he's rich enough to be able to make choices that will hurt people without facing no- any consequences. Kind of yeah, like what no- he did with the weed, Now, too. now, 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 he's a self-made oh, man who came to America with only $200 in his pocket and also a lot of emeralds. Yes, from his, <laughs> emerald, his family's emerald mine. Yeah. I do appreciate, though, that there was an effort here to cast an actor of color in a villain role. I think that's good. I think yeah. that's important, and I want to see more of that. I just want to see the villains be well fleshed out, let them do their thing. Like, his acting is great. Yeah, I don't think Riz Ahmed did awesome. a bad job. I just don't think he was given a lot to so work either. with. I don't think so either. In a way, and let me tell, tell me if you feel, tell me if I'm off base here, but I feel like this this role almost felt like a stab at M. Night Shyamalan <laughs> for some reason. Um, <laughs> And I don't know why. I don't know about that. There were no hints at twists that failed. Um, I I think this was more of a role that was definitely, you know, written to talk about billionaires like Musk. Oh, I'm not talking about M. Night Shyamalan as a writer or director. I'm just talking about M. Night Shyamalan as a person. I don't know that I see that comparison either. I, like, I think this is very distinctly an attempt to, um, address not only people like Elon Musk, but also people who are... Like, he tells us that he's had an education in a British school, right? So this is somebody who may also be from an upper caste. It's very likely that he is. Um, And I think that's part of what it's getting at as well, is this idea that, 
you know, across the spectrum, there are people who come from these very high spaces in the hierarchy who are able to do these really terrible things. I think that's more of what it's getting at than uh, jab. Oh, well, see, now that you mentioned that, you're putting thoughts in my head because when you look at him, he's a little bit blue-blooded. He is... And this kind of buys into the identity politics of the blue-collar guy where Eddie Brock is your pro-hero and he's, you know, your high society... You know, Eddie Brock is filthy and sweaty and grimy, and this guy is completely clean-cut and skinny and slightly effeminate, you know? He's the dude who eats the breakfast so octopus, it's like... and Eddie Brock takes a bath with lobsters. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, it, it's basically... Um, it, it's, it's basically, I feel like... When you get to, like, the classical definition of sinister, or, you know, left-handed, it's it's against what you perceive your audience to be normal and moral. Yeah. So it, it's deviance from the archetype, the archetype in this case being, you know, white, macho, blue-collar man. Right. Yeah. And that's the other thing is, like, he doesn't get his hands dirty. Eddie Brock pretty much accomplishes everything by himself. Or, you know, by himself via proxy oh, of cartoon geez, character that's Venom. Horrible. But uh but Carlton Drake oh just tells people to do things. Uh, this is getting worse as we think. Oh, it's real bad. Yeah, I just that plays into so many things that are so many current discourses on immigration that cast as sort of like um, white blue collar workers as people who have worked all their lives and immigrants as essentially lazy. And also people of color, like I... mm. Wait, hold up. Chris O'Hara is credited in this as astronaut J.J. Jameson III. Oh, yeah. You didn't catch that? No. Yeah. He's the guy who comes back with, uh, with, 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 um, who gets first possessed by, uh, Riot. Oh, so, 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 ah, that, I don't, see, I don't like that, because first of all, they're doing that thing where they're like, we don't need Marvel. Also, hey, uh, remember J.K. Simmons? Hey, hey, hey. But also, we're going to kill him! Because fuck you, we don't need you! I mean, if I remember right, at least from the 90s cartoon, that's how they introduced J. Jonah Jameson's son, so... Oh. As he comes back... I mean, that's I believe that's how it was in the Sam Raimi mm-hmm. trilogy. So. I think so. I guess he's part of that storyline, but, like, the direct connection is, like, they didn't need to do no, that. No, they didn't. Well, they also didn't need to do the Daily Globe thing, which didn't really add anything to anyone, for for anyone, apart from the kind of people who um, liked Ready Player One and said, clap, I got that reference. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I don't think the Daily Globe actually is pushing towards anything in a positive reinforcement way. What I think the Daily Globe is doing is pushing the bugle out of right mind. yeah i mean yeah that's that's because eddie brock absolutely has a history with the daily bugle no and that he has a he's dreaming dreaming out of new york 
it's like it's trying to shove the fact that Venom has been ripped out of the Marvel Universe under the rug. No, I, I know what I'm more saying as it has the words the Daily Globe, which is a thing in the comics, which would make dumb nerds clap their hands and say, yay. So it's doing just fans. Yeah, I'm downgrading this one to a C minus. You know what? No, this is a D plus. See me after class. <laughs> because one yeah. of the things philosophically that I'm struggling yeah. with this is the Hollywood buyout. Is this idea that when something's being produced by Sony Pictures or Marvel Studios, that enough money is going to go into it to save it. And it fucking didn't. It fucking didn't. So this movie are. I think this is the worst movie you've done on the podcast this, so far. I, I also have to agree. I think it really is. And what I'm kind of fascinated by right now is that a couple days before I saw it, um, and I saw it on Tuesday? Yes. No, Wednesday. Um, it was announced that they have a sequel in the works for this. So... I'm not surprised. I don't care. I don't want to see Carnage. Yeah. I've already seen him, and he was bad. And they didn't give him his name. I don't need to see Woody Harrelson in a wig. <laughs> um, I kind of want to. See... We've already got the Hunger Games. <laughs> I kind of want to see that though. Well, here's the thing, though, is like Woody Harrelson. I really like and respect as an actor, but one of the things that he's really found to be his energy is this kind of slightly sinister mellowness. And Cletus Cassidy is not that. That's true. Cletus Cassidy is manic. Like, David Tennant would make a much better Cletus uh, Cassidy. Yeah, but you already have yeah, Tennant true. as Kilgrave, so... Uh. Also, Venom doesn't have the... Well, they don't care. They really don't care. It's Sony. It's not Marvel. Ven- Venom doesn't have the budget to hire David Tennant. Yeah, no. They know. I don't know. They got Tom Hardy. I... Yeah, well, they, I'm not they sure can't, I don't it. think they can get both Tom Hardy and Tennant in the same movie. I don't think they have that kind of money that they're going to invest in things. Yeah. So let's, um, so John, this is going to be new for you since it's been a while, but we like to end things on a kind of direct address to the director. Uh, something, something film is a collaborative process, but (laughs) the director is ultimately the one who has their name stamped on things and is one of the people with the most creative control, even if they are subject to the whims of the studio and the production house. That being said, uh, Annie, what would you say to Ruben Fleischer? Dear Mr. Fleischer, I'm sure that you're laughing all the way to the bank because of all the money you've made in the past week and a half. And I know that our podcast doesn't exactly have Collider or Hollywood Reporter behind it to lend it critical cachet. But here's the deal. Your movie has very little of substance to say about its own core concept. And what it does have to say is largely racist and sexist. Now, I think that you could actually change the calculus of this franchise. You could, if you wanted to. And to do that, what you would have to do is decenter your own perspective in the work you make. You need to include writers of color on your staff. You need to include more women writers on your staff. And if you're going to cover a topic like homelessness in San Francisco, you not only need to do your homework on that topic, and present it as accurately as you can, 
but you also need to make sure that the concept is carried through in the screenplay and in the film itself. It can't just be lampshaded in as a morality pet. All right, John, do you have any words for Mr. Fleischer? Hey, buddy. Hey, pal. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to spin this chair around so it backwards. Let's let's real talk, my friend. Adults <laughs> leave the room. This is a teens only conversation. <laughs> I read the original Venom Lethal Protector comic. It involved a crazed capitalist who wanted revenge on Venom for undefined reasons and was also using digging robots to try and steal gold from a community of homeless people that lived in a secret, perfectly preserved, gas lamp era San Francisco under the city. Your movie made less sense than that. <laughs> Please, just don't be bad. Why are you bad? Be good instead. All right. And for me, Mr. Fleischer, what the fuck, dude? Come on. Grow some balls and make a movie that you care about. Or if this is the best that you can do, retire, bitch. Because goddamn. <sighs> at me, motherfuckers. Fucking at me. I don't give a shit. And anyways, this has been the Movie Morgue, your premier movie autopsy podcast. I've been your host, Sylvia Emery. You guys can follow me on Twitter and Twitch.tv at DoubleDocMD. Annie, where can people find you? Well, people can find me on Twitter at, at Lights and Music, where they can check out uh, photographs of my food, pictures of my dog, and sometimes I post academic articles on there that I'm really into. And John, you're kind of an internet recluse, aren't you? I am, because my Twitter doesn't have a lot going on, uh, so I don't give it out. But uh, you can find me on the Movie More Discord, uh, and uh, that, that, well, other discords around the internet but mostly about podcasts john is what we call a uh, asylum seeker from irc I i'm still signed into irc right now okay fine 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 let undercut all my fucking jokes whatever yes. anyways you guys can follow <laughs> us on twitter at movie more cast um we have a facebook page we have a discord where the conversation continues Doubt, links all in the show notes uh, our intro music as always is Trouble by Ipso Factibus find a link to their EP again in the show notes and uh, if you want to support us uh, first of all listen, subscribe, review us on iTunes and most importantly tell your friends you know if you enjoyed this uh, and if you want to go a step further and help us financially we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash doubledocmd anyways uh, we hope you guys have enjoyed this. Uh, we cannot do this without you guys. And thank you guys so much for tuning in with us. And we'll see you next time. Uh, this has been the Move Morgue. Good. Bye bye. Stay dead, Morgheads. <laughs> You're fired. You're fucking fired, John. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha!